from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Welcome to part two with economist Dr. Joanna Marinescu from University of Pennsylvania and our co-host Jane Albrecht. Today we're going to be talking about a couple of hot topics, minimum wage and how our country will economically recover from COVID. The second half of the show is going to be a lightning round where we get answers on a bunch of on-fire subjects in 30 seconds each. So keep your sneakers on and join us on Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Joanna, last time we talked about the universal basic income and the universal child benefit. This time, we're going to focus on another aspect that has certainly been the major debate in Washington. So I wonder if you could explain what's going on with the raise of the federal minimum wage and why that is so unpopular with some in government. The minimum wage, federal minimum wage, hasn't been raised uh, since 2009. So it's been one of the longest stretches that the federal minimum wage hasn't been raised. Basically, the issue is that productivity has increased and prices have increased and the minimum wage is still the same. So you could think that it's legitimate to increase it. And so then why is there so much resistance? Two reasons. Uh, One is that there is a risk that an increase in the minimum wage could suppress some jobs as it becomes too expensive to hire people for some employers. Do you think that's real? I think that's mostly not real on average. The effects are very small, probably about zero. And we can talk about why why that's the case. And then the other concern is that, and it's related, uh, but is that it's going to cost employers more, and therefore is going to lead to a decrease in profits. And of course, understandably, businesses don't really want to see their profits decrease. And so that creates a resistance in the system uh, against this new measure. So let's knock these dominoes down one at a time. First of all, the difference between a federal minimum wage and state's minimum wage, because what people don't realize is that every state has their own minimum wage parameters right now. For example, I think California is already at a $14 minimum wage. Washington, D.C. is already at 15. Let's see, Illinois is at 11. Rhode Island's at 11. There's a whole bunch that are still down around $7 and $8. Washington State is up around 14. Not only that, Bill, but Amazon and Target are already at 15, that they decided themselves to impose on themselves. Well, they decided to impose on us. We can discuss that, but yes. (laughs) Okay. So why is it we need a federal minimum wage when in theory it could be a state decision? Because how much it costs to live in a place is really much more a regional subject than it is a national one. The federal minimum wage, just like if you think about poverty line, it's sort of the bare minimum that at the federal level, we think that people should be making. And then as we know, and it's always been the case in the US, states and cities that feel like you can pay more in this locale can top up uh, however much they want. So you have to think of this as the bare minimum with average you know, opportunities given to each locale to adjust it to its particular circumstances up away from whatever we decide is the bare minimum. So I think that's how you should be thinking about it. So let's, again, get back to the dominoes that we have to knock down. So the thought by some of our governors that it might lose jobs, let's be straight. Whether there's a minimum wage at $10 or $15, most businesses are already careful to hire the number of people they need in order to do business. So the idea that if it costs more to hire someone that they're going to get rid of people to the point where they now have less people that they need doesn't really make sense, does it? 
Right, that's that's the complication. But you know, in the basic economic framework, if you think about you as a consumer, I don't know how many shirts you want to buy. If the shirts are more expensive, you probably want to buy fewer of them, possibly. I don't know, but that's the reasoning. So therefore, from the employer perspective, oh, look, people are more expensive, so I want to buy fewer of them. So that's just the basic reasoning here, that as things get more expensive, I'm less willing to buy, quote-unquote, of course, we're not really buying people, but you know, pay them this much if it's more expensive. And that's why jobs could decrease. But as you said, sometimes you might just need a certain number of people. And so then, you know, what are you going to do? Well, the thing is, if the person is literally not worth that money, you might still want to potentially even close business because you're just not able to make business at, at that price. Okay. So in an extreme case, it could literally lead to a whole business closing because it's no longer worthwhile to do business with that pay to your workers. But the key reason why in many cases, increasing the minimum wage is not going to lead to a decrease in employment is that workers are paid less than what they're bringing in for the business. And so therefore there's a cushion there that we can increase the minimum wage some, and it's still worthwhile to, as you were saying, Bill, there's this many people I, I need. And yeah, now I'm maybe making less profit, but it's still worthwhile to keep going with the business. Uh, I still need those people, so I'm keeping them on. And you know what? I might even be able to hire, in some cases, extra people, because as I'm paying more, there's more good people who potentially want to come work for me. And so in some cases, it could even increase employment. What are the companies or type of companies that are most egregious in underpaying their employees? Yes. So the companies that can underpay their employees the most are large companies who operate in small markets where they have very little competition. The pay that workers get very much depend on what we call the outside options. So if they didn't have this job, where else could they go? Okay. So if an employer is in an extreme, the only game in town, these are the employers that can afford to severely underpay their workers because, again, the workers don't have many other options. Conversely, if you're in a very large city with lots of employers as well as lots of different jobs that someone potentially could do, it's much easier and workers tend to get paid closer to what their real contribution is uh, to the business bottom line. Interesting. Has anyone ever thought to guide minimum wage by company size? Not really. And in fact, paradoxically, I mean, my research shows that plausibly it's in the more rural areas that people are the most underpaid. And therefore, that's where you could increase the minimum wage without doing too much damage. Because again, there's that cushion. But paradoxically, most people think that it's the opposite, that in rural areas, you couldn't pay people more. And I think that obviously there's other considerations like cost of living and so on. But it's partly a misconception in the sense that those areas with little competition for workers are where there's most opportunity for workers to be underpaid. And therefore, it's important there, especially to have a minimum wage. How about public versus private companies? Public companies are a whole other beast. You know, they're not going to necessarily decrease the number of employees, you know, just because the, the minimum wage is higher. They have a very different calculation that they're making in terms of, you know, what kind of public service they want to provide and how many people. What part do companies like Walmart and McDonald's play in minimum wage arguments that make politicians vote against it? 
Right. I mean, interestingly, a lot of those companies have dropped their lobbying against the minimum wage. And as I was mentioning earlier, uh, companies like Target and Amazon voluntarily adopted $15 minimum wage. That is the minimum that they decide to pay uh, for their employees. So one interesting piece of research that people have looked at what happens when the minimum wage goes up. And one of the things that happens is that workers tend to transition away from smaller, less productive businesses towards bigger, more productive businesses. Not always, you know, that's on average, because the bigger businesses essentially can afford to pay more. And so essentially, this encourages the reallocation of workers towards, you know, more productive companies. That's part of why employment doesn't necessarily decrease. It's just that people reshuffle, you know, where exactly they're working. As I said, at the margin, they tend to go to slightly more productive and also usually bigger companies. And so the bigger companies play a complicated role in this because, uh, you know, they, they often pay more but they might be underpaying relative to what they could be paying. And these are two different considerations, right? So they might be very productive, so they can actually afford to pay more than some small competitors. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they pay fairly in the sense that, you know, the workers there could be actually really very productive and they could afford to pay even more. But because they might have this position of power, they don't necessarily have to pay more, right? So it is a bit of a I don't want to demonize big companies because many of them are very efficient. We want to have them around and allow them to grow, but it's just that you have to sort of balance different considerations uh, in this whole scheme. So I don't want to give the impression that the big companies are evil or something. Why don't they, in the minimum wage law, why don't they just adjust it for inflation? Because one problem is that the the current federal minimum wage is what, $7.25 or something? Mm -hmm. And so there's a large number of states, mainly states with large rural populations and the cost of living is lower, where either they match the federal minimum wage or they have none and just go with the federal minimum wage. So an increase to $15 overnight is going to be a dramatic change in the cost for employers in those states. If it had been inflation adjusted all along, it would have just been gradual, which is what it should be. That's why the minimum wage that's being proposed is gradual. It's in a bunch of steps. And I think that's a very good idea because you have to let everybody some time to adjust to those uh, to those changes. It is true, Jane, that in many other countries, the minimum wage is updated once a year, for example, in the UK or in France, to account for changes in the cost of living. It's, it's extremely common. And why it's not happening in the US, you know, we can guess. But my guess would be that lawmakers want to give themselves the latitude to decide what should happen. Whereas in these other countries, more or less, there's an expert commission where everybody is represented. And, you know, they typically increase it a bit every year, roughly in line uh, with the cost of living. And then the politicians can always come in and say, no, actually, we want to increase it even more, perhaps because workers have become more productive, let's say. But that's another issue. And uh, indeed, I think indexing it to inflation could be a good idea, especially now that inflation is pretty low and is probably going to stay so for the foreseeable future. Because one of the reasons why you might not want to do this is if you have really high inflation, it can lead to what we call an inflationary spiral where prices go up, everything else goes up. So prices go up. So it just gets worse and worse. But I really don't think that right now we are facing that kind of danger. I think the reason it doesn't get done in the United States is because it's a tough sell always, as it is now. When it finally does happen, politicians and employers know that over time, inflation goes up, but the minimum wage stays the same. So it's a relatively lower cost. Right. So Jane, I'll make you a deal. Yeah? 
I won't mess with the idea of paying somebody $15,000 a year with a $7.25 minimum wage if you enact the universal basic income and we give every adult $24,000 a year. I could go with the universal basic income as long as it doesn't involve VAT. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Okay. To our listeners, give a quick listen to this. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Joanna, what lies ahead post-COVID economically? An expansion party or a big hangover? We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurtco Media. Okay, you two. Let's talk about what lies ahead for us now post-COVID as we see the light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully not an oncoming freight train. Economically, are we going to have a party or is it going to be a massive hangover? Where are we, Ioana? I think, you know, everything indicates that things are going to be great uh, in the near future, but with uncertainty because we don't know for sure. Is it absolutely clear that this end of vaccine rollout is going to go well. What about variants? So, you know, there's some uncertainty, but most likely scenario is that the U.S. is one of the best vaccinators in the world. We've had a series of stimulus packages that were some of the highest in the world. So we are poised for a very, very strong uh, recovery in employment towards the end of the spring, the summer. And, you know, the OECD projects that the U.S. growth should be very strong and among the best performing in the world. So in the sort of short to medium run, I think things should be looking pretty dandy, but again, with some cone of uncertainty, because we don't know for sure what's going to happen to this pandemic. But Ioana, we've spent the year, or at least the government spent the year printing money and, and pushing it into the economy. That's huge inflationary pressure normally. But so far, it has not materialized. In fact, during the time where there was the first CARES Act, prices around the time where all this money with the first stimulus check, the extra unemployment, huge amount of money that people got, prices went down during that same period, just as as one example. So it's just not happening for now. It might happen in the future. But also remember, for now, people have been saving some of that money, waiting for things to sort of pick up, making sure that they have something to spend later on. And I think there's a lot of pent up demand, meaning that once things are more open, it's safer people are probably going to get out and spend some of the stimulus. And there, there might be some inflationary pressure, but how much it materializes depends on the ability of businesses to pick up production, meaning produce more widgets, more meals, more of whatever people want to. As long as business picks up strongly, there shouldn't be a strong increase in prices. And I think business can pick up strongly because we still have a lot of unemployment, for example. So they have a lot of ability to bring in more people and make the machine churn so that, you know, we can make more stuff. You know, we've already seen disruption in the supply chains. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that's going to be completely solved. I think the the recent shipping crisis where shipping containers are held up and their cargo ships are backed up in ports. Right is a huge problem. That is a problem. That's a problem now, but over the course of the next year, that'll get cleared up. That's what I'm expecting. But of course, we we can know for sure, but very likely, as also these other countries are doing better, our trade partners, uh, this is going to hopefully ease. So Ioana, you started that statement by saying things are going to be great. 
Uh, Jane, I know that you won't be happy with the statement, but you have to give credit to both the Trump administration and Biden's administration for stimulating our way into a healthy potential recovery here. You're not even going to comment on that, Jane, are you? (laughs) (laughs) I think the stimulus was the right thing to do. Thank God they did one thing right, meaning the Trump administration did a lot of other things to mess it up. Okay. So, Joanna, what jobs are going to recover in this post-pandemic economy and which ones won't? So, first thing off, I want everybody to know that high-income jobs have not suffered at all from the pandemic first. So, therefore, the recovery question, we're talking mostly about, you know, lower paid jobs and which ones are going to uh, rebound and which ones aren't. And, you know, let's just take some examples. I think it's quite likely that employees in restaurants, bars, and hotels, there's going to be a strong rebound because a lot of it is being limited by people fearing infection. And if we've successfully cleared that out, that business could rebound very strongly. Also, as people are like, yeah, we're back. So that's what we call pent-up demand. There's other sectors where it's a little bit less clear. Another example would be retail. Okay, so anecdote, around the corner from me, there's uh, two grocery stores. One is fully automated. There's no cashiers. The other one only has cashiers. And just a few weeks ago, I saw that the one with cashiers now has a line that is also uh, automated. And so these are the kinds of concerns we might have is that during the pandemic, some of the companies took advantage to uh, revamp their production process and in particular automate their production process. And that some of the jobs, like the jobs in uh, for cashiers in retail, may never come back. And, you know, how exactly this plays out, we'll see. But there is certainly a danger that some of the steps that companies have taken to avoid personal contact, right, because people wanted to limit their risk during the pandemic, once they're made a capital investment to go in that direction, that capital investment is durable. So it's not going to be reversed. And so those jobs are the types of jobs that are potentially at risk of not bouncing back uh, in the same way, uh, you know, as some of the more personal service kind of jobs that I think could uh, rebound quite strongly. But you're, you're saying that some of the change here is in fact accelerating changes that were already taking place. That's right. For example, this is a pet subject, the future of work for uh, State Senator Henry Stern out in California. How do you expect AI computers, automation, and robots to affect our job market going forward? During the pandemic, because of the risk of infection, there has been a heightened incentive for businesses to uh, have people interact with machines instead of interacting with real people. And therefore, that will have accelerated uh, automation. Also, we've been working remotely. So all these processes that were put in place in terms of working remotely, some of it is going to stay with us. And that can have interesting indirect consequences, again, for types of jobs. So for example, if more people are working from home, there will be fewer, you know, lunch restaurants in the central business district because there's fewer people in the central business district who want to go out for lunch over there. Do you expect that to remain, that more people are going to work from home because they've kind of gotten used to it? For sure, more people are going to work from home than before. Not than, not as much as right now, but it's going to be higher than the pre-pandemic. So what do you expect that to do to commercial real estate? Prices are probably going to go down. Yeah. And actually, this relates to another question I have, which is, 
the real estate market, housing real estate market has been booming in this thing because you've had incredibly cheap money. And you've had a lot of people at the higher end, as you noted, that didn't lose their jobs. So one potential serious problem I see in any midterm recovery is the cost of money will go back up. And with the cost of money going back up, that's going to drive down sales in the housing market. Secondly, as you just mentioned, with the commercial real estate market, not everybody's going back. So there's going to be a lot of pressure in the commercial real estate market, first of all, to lower rents, and secondly, not to build as much. Mm -hmm. You combine those two, and the real estate market usually drives expansions or depressions in our, or recessions in our economy. So if you have the real estate market sort of crashing when everything else is coming back, how is an economy going to react to that? I don't see the real estate market crashing. It's more that it might not be as dynamic as other sectors. And I think there's a key difference between this recession and the prior recession, the Great uh, Great Recession, which is that in the Great Recession, the, the fundamentals of the economy were not good because we had a major financial issue with a lot of subprime mortgages that were made to people who weren't necessarily able to pay. And then the crisis hit, it was like a, a big mess. That's takes a while to like clear up. But in the current situation, the fundamentals are unaltered in the economy. I mean, this is a virus that came out, you know, lots of unfortunate consequences, unfortunately, lots of dead people. But it's not like our economy is like unhealthy as far as the economy because of that. So that leaves the opportunity for a strong rebound in principle. Now we'll see if it happens, but... Jane, you have to admit, we've accelerated the whole concept of Zoom, communicating through Zoom, doing business through Zoom. And I think the business travel marketplace is going to be challenged going forward for a good long time. That's going to be interesting to watch. Theaters, it's going to be interesting to see if movie theaters come back. Certainly, we've seen what happens to restaurants. There's a tremendous amount of pressure to get back out there. And the restaurants that serve good food, they're completely full. They're over full. You can't even get a reservation. And certainly, there's a tremendous amount of pressure toward travel, vacation and leisure travel. People want to get back out there. So there's some things that'll be interesting to watch. Iona, I want to take a very quick break, but I want to invite you to our lightning round to close the show. All right. And we'll be right back because that's a listener favorite, and I think you're going to be great at it. We'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with our lightning round. Okay, here's the rules. I'm going to ask you a complicated question that could be an hour-long answer, and you have to answer it in two sentences. And this is good for both of you. You ready? All right. Why do we care how high the national debt is? because it puts pressure on the cost of money. I don't care how fancy you get with economics. It's asking the next generation to pay it back. Because it could limit our ability to spend in the future for things that we really want. When you have control over interest rates and you're at 0% right now, we have the ability to print money. 
We've certainly proven that we're prepared to write a $5 trillion stimulus check when there's a real problem. Is it really that important that we follow the national debt? That goes back to Jane's point, inflation. At some point, there is no doubt that you will get to inflation at some point. We just don't uh, know what that point is, but at some point there so much extra money uh, will likely lead to inflation. I don't think it's a danger in the near term, but it could become an issue if we were to add more and more and more uh, to uh, the public debt. Just like an individual, if you have solid finances, you're able to weather the tough times like this. Great. Question two. How can the U.S., with its largest banks accounting for $4 trillion in assets, compete long-term with China and its centrally controlled four largest banks that are already $14 trillion in assets with their growing global influence? I don't think it's important who's first as long as we have a good life over here. I think that's a really good question, Bill, and I think that requires a balance of enabling our banks to get to a size where they can amass capital and supporting other policies that we think are important. And the other answer to that is you've got to have an international rule of law in the fiscal area, not just the trade area. Question three, is there a finite total value in the country, meaning that if a rich person gets richer, does that money come from somewhere or can that be more wealth that is created? It definitely can be more wealth, but it doesn't have to be. And some people are certainly taking away from others. I don't think it's a zero-sum game. How does that take away from others? I mean, if I start a company and I spend, oh, I don't know, $100 million, and in five years' time, I sell that company for tech multiples, and I sell it for a billion dollars, so it made 10 times my money. Who wins and who loses? Does anybody lose that money, or is that created value? It depends. Did you just disrupt an industry? Okay, that could be a complicated answer. Right. Well, I mean, let's say that most of the time they are creating value, but in some cases, such as tax counselors, they might be taking money away from people in the sense that, you know, if they're counseling very rich people in ways to save taxes, I'm not sure that that creates value as a, as a business, right? So it could be a great business for the person who's running it, but it's not necessarily creating value. Okay, next question. What was the thinking behind capital gains tax advantages? And what's the argument to keep them going? The idea is to encourage investment and therefore have more growth and more productivity and therefore hoping that that comes down uh, to improve the living standards of a broad swath of the population. Okay, next question. What percentage of the U.S. government spend is efficient? And is there really an effort here Mm. to make government spending efficient? Mm. I don't have an answer on that one, Bill. That's a statistical answer that we'd have to look up. I think it's not just a statistical answer. It's it's a conceptually hard to answer question because how do you measure efficiency? I don't know. Next question. Why are there tax incentives created for real estate? A lot of them were originally developed after World War II to promote the American dream of everyone owning a house. There's a serious question whether that is still the case because there have been unintended consequences of that, namely skyrocketing housing markets in Los Angeles, cities like Los Angeles, and therefore tremendous homelessness as a result because housing is too expensive. One more question. Joanna, if we incorporate your universal basic income that we talked about at the last show, what are we going to do about managing our border? 
people who come in because this is a place where the streets really are paved with gold and we give even the lowest income people a reasonable living. Practically speaking, you limit the universal basic income to uh, citizens. And so, you know, you can become a citizen, but that's going to take several years and that will drastically curtail anybody who's just coming in for that reason. Jane, any thoughts? I think it's a fair question. I think if we go with what Joanna suggested, then it will work. If we move away from that, there will be a desire by many to come here to benefit from it. Jane, thank you for co-hosting this with me again. And Dr. Ioana Marinescu, thank you so much for coming on two episodes in a row. Tell me again, how can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at mioana, M-I-O-A-N-A. Thank you so much. And hey, don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around to find Meet Me in the Middle. Thank you to our producer, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode, Stuart Halpern. Have a wonderful life, everybody. I think we're in for some good times going forward. And still wear a mask. It will be okay. From Kirko Media. Media for your mind.